Our reading this morning is from Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26. 16 through 26. This is about as Jesus counsels the rich young ruler. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Pride is insidious. Pride is deceptive. Pride is amazingly one of those sins that you can so clearly see in somebody else, but you can't very clearly see in yourself. Pride is one of those things that can puff you up to the point where you don't even realize you have it. And then all of a sudden you come along and realize that you have missed it. You've missed something good because of, well, your own pride. I begin with this illustration. Arnold Palmer, before he became a delicious half-sweet tea and half-lemonade drink, was a famous golfer, believe it or not. He, in 1961, he tells this story about the 1961 Masters Tournament. He said this was the final hole at the Masters, and he said, I had had a very satisfying tee shot off of this 18th hole. And he said as it uh, lie in the fairway, he began to walk up to the ball, and he said he realized that he was a, lead, uh, uh, um, a shot ahead. He was in the lead by one shot and by one stroke. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of his eye, he sees over in the gallery one of his good friends. And the friend kind of motioned him over, and he said, okay. So he began to walk over, and before this friend could do anything else, he stuck out his hand and said, congratulations. And Arnold Palmer said, at that moment, I knew I'd lost it. I had lost my concentration. And he said the next two shots, he hit one of them into a sand trap, and the next one he hit over the green, and he missed that final final putt and lost the Masters just in those few strokes. He said, I've never forgotten that illustration, that how much it takes just to lose it and to miss the final shot. 
It was in a lot of respects because of pride that caused him to go away and go in and lose that game. How difficult it is to look and see our own pride and how look difficult it is to look at ourselves and say, you know what, I've got a pride problem. I think about how Jesus, whenever it was that he was here on this earth, how he dealt with men's pride, and particularly using the title of the sermon, how he looked at people and realized they had a chance to see him for who he was, and they missed it. If you're there in the book of Matthew, flip back to Matthew chapter 6 just for a moment. Matthew chapter 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew looks at his life and he looks at uh, his um, Jesus is speaking there in Matthew chapter 6 and talking about um, what it's like on the kingdom side. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 uses three illustrations of the religious leaders of that day who believed that they had found God and Jesus said they have missed it. He uses three of their actions beginning with doing charitable deeds. He said, beware that you don't do your charitable deeds to be seen by men. He would go on to talk about those people that would sound a trumpet before them in the marketplace and, and that they, before they would drop the, the, the alms into the beggar's pen or the beggar's hand. He said, those people are working for the praise of men. And he said, they'll probably receive it. He said, but God doesn't look that way. And they've missed the approval of God. The second illustration he uses talking about how men offer prayers and for pretense they make long prayers. And he said they, they, they like to stand praying in the synagogues and in the street corners. And you look at the book of Luke and how Luke talks about the Pharisee praying thus with himself with his arms upstretched and saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He said all of their works they do to be seen by men. He says they missed it. And large part due to their pride. He talks about fasting about how when those people fast, they would, they would put on ashes and they would put on their dark clothes and they would begin to walk around with mopey faces. And he said they're looking for the opportunity for people to say, what's wrong with you? Oh, nothing. I'm fasting. I'm devoting my life to God, my time that I would have spent eating to growing closer to him. And Jesus says, if that's your motivation to get the praise of men, you'll have the praise of men, but you'll miss the praise of God. As you look further on in the book of Matthew, going leading up to chapter 19, you'll note that there were many people that he mentioned that missed it. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. He says, Not everybody that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, have we not prophesied your name? Have we not done many works in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? You get a sense that there is a very public appeal to what it is that these people are doing. And Jesus says, I never had a relationship with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, that you who have done what you've done without the authority of God. They missed it, didn't they? You look on Matthew chapter 9 about how it was that uh, Jesus was healing paralytic. Uh, Mark would add the details that this man was lowered down through the roof on a pallet. And as Jesus saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven you. And those people that were there on that occasion began to look at Jesus and say, this man is speaking blasphemy. Who in the world can forgive sins except God alone? And Jesus says, so that you may know that the son of man has the power on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. They were too busy staring at the perceived incongruity between this man and his claims and his actions. And because of their pride, they ended up missing it. 
Fast forwarding to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, I believe, is talking about people that miss the teaching and the commandment and the values of God because of pride. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9, or 1 through 12, actually. You find the teaching about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, but it begins based upon academic pride. These people that look at at, uh, the two major popular doctrines and teachings of that day and look at it and say, how in the world can it be that, uh, that, which one do you agree with, Jesus? Do you agree with Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai? Uh, Jesus, tell us what it is that you think about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And when Jesus takes them all the way back to the beginning and begins to look at that, he is able to poke holes in their theories because of that academic pride. It is that Jesus, in his, uh, in his counsel and in his wisdom, was able to show something of themselves. As you jump down to the context, verses 13 through 15, you have Jesus having the children come to them, come to him, and what are his disciples doing? They're saying the teacher is too important for this. They're looking at these little children and they're saying, we don't want these children. Jesus doesn't have time for these children. And Jesus says, you missed it. You missed it. Allow the children to come of me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. But when you get to verses 16 through 24, you find the rich young ruler, as we have so called him. The Bible doesn't call him that. We piece that together because Luke says he was a ruler. Matthew talks about repeatedly that he was a young man. And also all three accounts say that he had great possessions, so therefore we put it together that he is the rich young Ruler, but note that we can be looking for something so carefully and sometimes by our pride, we can completely miss it. A couple things about this man and see how and why it could happen to us, how it happened to him, but how it could really happen to us. Number one, realize that Jesus, this young man had the wrong view of Jesus. This young man really had the wrong view of Jesus. Verse 16, he comes to him and he says, Good teacher, what good thing must I do in order to inherit eternal life? He calls Jesus good teacher. And in this instance, it's important for us to realize that Jesus is far more than a good teacher. And in fact, I believe in this context, what he's trying to do is help this young man to see who he really is. As he tries to help this young man see this truth by saying this, verse 17 Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. As Jesus is affirming this, he's saying Jesus is more than a good teacher. We know him to be the son of God. And as he's trying to get this young man to see this, do you suppose that his response would have been different? If he had realized that he was looking at the image, the the icon of God, as Colossians would say, the one who is the very son of God, God in the flesh, If this young man had really realized who it was that he was talking to, that it's not just another rabbi, that it's not just another individual, but he was getting counsel from God, from the mouth of God, do you suppose his response to this one would be different? Do you suppose we recognize this truth? If we looked into the word of God and remembered that this is out of the very mouth of God, would we have a different response to the Lord? What if you were able to ask God a question face to face? God, what do I lack? 
God, what ways and what areas do I need to grow as a person who's trying to please you? God, tell me exactly what it is that I need to do and how it is that I need to grow as an individual. What if we had the opportunity face-to-face to look at God and to ask that question? Here's the question that we really need to ask. Would I change? Would I change? Would I surrender my pride if it was that I knew that this was God's answer? This was not just the answer of a a good rabbi or a good teacher or anybody else, but I'm asking from the position of really wanting to grow and wanting to change the way that God wants me to live. God, in what areas do I need to repent? God, in what areas are pride, is pride blinding me from seeing the truth about who you are? You see... We can listen and hear and understand what we need to do. But folks, if we divorce that from an authority of God and his word and realizing that it's him that speaks, it's him that gives comfort, it's him that is able to instruct us in the way that we ought to go, would that compel us to change? Does that compel us to be changed? There are some people that will talk about going as far as they can with Jesus and walking with Him every step of the way. And yet whenever Jesus says, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. Mark 16, 15, and 16. And there are people that will say, Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus, baptism is not necessary for salvation. It doesn't matter that Peter in his very first gospel sermon proclaimed, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2 verse 38. It doesn't matter that every conversion example in the book of Acts has baptism as part of it. Instead, some people would just want to say, well, no, 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 just say the sinner's prayer. Something that's not found anywhere in scripture. Something that you'll never find a person wanting to please God speaking in this book. I believe they have the wrong view of Jesus. And sometimes we can hold on to those wrong views to the point where they become a source of pride for us. Never will I surrender this because... Because what? Because I know better than God? Because I know better than Jesus? Because mom and dad did it and they wouldn't lead me astray? Brothers and sisters, we have the wrong view of Jesus if that's the way that we're going to take things. And when the Lord instructs us about things that need to be changed in our lives, is it sometimes that pride gets in the way of seeing Jesus to the point where we miss it? This young man had the wrong view of Jesus. Number two, I want you to realize he had the wrong view of himself. He had the wrong view of himself. He comes to Jesus and he asks this question, Teacher, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have and inherit eternal life? I kind of asked the question on the margin of my Bible, that was he only looking for one thing? <laughs> Jesus, I'm only interested in doing really one thing, but again, that may be narrowing it too much. And Jesus says, verse 17, if you want to enter into life, here's what you need to do. Keep the commandments. This young man asked for clarification about the commandments. It's almost like he's saying, well, be specific, sir. Please tell me exactly which commandments I need to follow, verses 18 and 19. And note that Jesus cites five of the last six commandments found there in Exodus 20. And in fact, the very last one, love your neighbor as yourself, could be uh, euphemistically or could be inclusive of don't covet your neighbor's stuff, the very last commandment. 
And this young man says this, all these things I have kept. The word is watched. The word is observed. The word is carefully guarded. I have paid close attention to all these things, Jesus. I have looked at these things all the way from my youth. I find it kind of funny that it says this young man answered all these things I've kept from my youth. Sometimes it is that we feel like we're doing okay. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's only been just a short time. Sometimes we don't anticipate the difficulties and problems that we can face because we're too busy looking and saying, look at how faithful I am. So this man says, all these things I've kept from my youth, and he says, what do I still lack? I'm doing great. Jesus, I've done each one of these things. Check, 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 check. Why did he ask this? What do I still lack? One man suggested that Legalism. Legalism. Checking off a checklist and saying, I'm okay with God. Legalism is sometimes very comforting. I like to make a checklist. I love making checklists. One of the very first things I do on Monday morning is write down all the things I need to get accomplished that week. And then I love being able to scratch those things off my list so that I know that I haven't left anything undone of all the things I need to get accomplished that week. And we can sometimes treat Christianity like that. That I've attended worship, check. I've attended Bible class, check. I've uh, uh, prayed for people, check. I've read my Bible, check. And we feel like we get this sense of, I'm doing pretty well. But sometimes what happens even more so is that legalism can really uh, cause us to feel on the inside a very unsettled feeling in our hearts. We feel like we're doing enough. We feel like we're doing great. And when really all that is is just a matter of self-righteousness. The question, what do I still lack? The word lack is an interesting word. It's the word that means literally to leave behind in the race. That is, I've started running in the race. At what point, Jesus, have I given up? In what races have I literally just quit and stopped running it? Fall short to the end, be inferior. The word lack is the same word used of the prodigal son in Luke 15, whenever it said that after he had lived, lived his life in prodigal living, he began to be in want. He began to have need and to lack. Sometimes it can be that we're too busy looking at ourselves and saying, I'm doing great. And sometimes it is that we're too busy by our own pride looking at our own accomplishments and saying, look at how great I'm doing. I had a girl in high school, I don't know why I remember this, but she was the brainiac of the class. And she always had 100 average. You didn't have to ask what she got on quizzes because she always got hundreds. But whenever the teacher was kind of towards the end of the six weeks before report cards came out, she would begin to call the students up and begin to tell them what it was that they were lacking and begin to tell them, okay, well, you need to work harder here. Here's some extra credit work because the teacher didn't want you to fail. I appreciate that. But this girl would invariably not get called up. And instead, she would make a big point to go up in front of the teacher and say, teacher, how am I doing? Oh, Susie, you're doing great. Her name wasn't Susie, but you understand, protecting the innocent. You understand that she stood up and she said, Oh, Susie, you've got a hundred average. Well, what can I do to improve? Why would she ask that question? Why would she ask that question? 
And again, it was just a big show of saying, look at how good I'm doing. You kind of get a sense of this rich young ruler having that same attitude. He might well sing, I'm rich, I'm saved, I'm happy. I have health and prosperity. I have friends, I have doors ever open. The Lord has been mindful of me. When in the fact, as Jesus pokes a hole in his pride and looks at himself and says he's doing great, that is a wrong view of how this man should have looked at himself. You may jot down Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. As Jesus opened the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. There is a view of self that has to be held on to and saying that everything that I have, I am fully dependent upon God. He had the wrong view of Jesus. He had the wrong view of himself. He had the wrong view of his possessions. He had the wrong view of his possessions. There are four imperatives in what Jesus tells him. Mark would add the detail that after Jesus heard these things, he looked at this young man and he loved him. It wasn't Jesus' desire that this man go away sorrowful, but it was the fact that he saw that there was a heart in this young man that was perhaps interested in doing the will of God. But as Jesus spoke these next words, it caused a holy un unprecedented reaction. Jesus said, if you want, that is, if you have in mind, if you resolve uh, this young, uh, young man to be perfect, brought to completion, there are four imperatives you must do. Go. That's number one. Go sell. Number two. Go sell and give. Number three, to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow. Imperative number four. Come and follow me. Literally, come walk this road with me. Come from this moment on, from now on, walk with me down this road that I've got to walk. Walk down this path with me. And as this young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful, full of grief, literally, weighed down with grief. Jesus gave him cause to have, I like this word, a scruple. We don't use the word scruples very often, but the word is hesitation, a cause for pause. And I have a picture, I had a picture of this man going to Jesus saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. The man says, I've kept all these things from my youth. And this man says, well, what do I still lack? He says, well, go sell your what you have, give it to the poor. And the man immediately turns away and walks. When in reality, what probably happened is looking at Jesus and realizing what has just come out of his mouth, this man begins to process. And can you imagine the scene where his mouth opens and closes? And then opens and closes again where he wants so much to follow Jesus, but at the same time, he wants so much to keep what he has. As Jesus lances this person's pride, as he wants this man more than anything else to get it, to come and walk this road with them, he doesn't force him. He doesn't force him. Instead, he gives this opportunity for a person to have pause, to think about what's really important. Do I need to do this? 
please understand, individual discipleship is up to you and it's up to me. In the same account in Luke 18, it's not that Jesus wants us to take vows of poverty and live impoverished for the rest of our lives. But in this example, Jesus is warning us and looking at us and saying, don't have the wrong view of your possessions. I can tell that because in Luke 18, you have an account just after this of a man by the name of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, as it was, that he calls him down from that tree and he goes to his house. He says, Lord, if I've defrauded anybody. I'm going to repay fourfold, plus I give half of all that I own to the poor. And Jesus didn't say, well, give the other half now. He said, salvation has come to this house. What the Lord wants more than anything is, folks, that we be wholly devoted to him, that we don't let our pride and don't let our possessions to dominate our relationship with the Lord or keep us from a right relationship with the Lord. What we cannot miss the point is humbly trusting Jesus is what he wants. We cannot miss the point. What we do, we do because God wants us to love in him and love our neighbors and ourselves. But sometimes we're so busy accumulating our possessions, accumulating the things that are going to perish that we fail to consider outside of ourselves what the Lord wants us to do and how he wants us to respond. I didn't have this illustration or this example in mind, but brothers and sisters, the days that we've been living in (laughs) over the past couple of weeks where we have seen hoarding toilet paper, people that have cleared the shelves like swarms of locusts because they're concerned and because they're afraid and, and because... They believe it's really within their own power to save themselves. And I understand there's a sense in which we want to be wise, like Steve spoke about this morning. But when you go and you look at some of the scenes at Kroger and uh, H-E-B and and people pushing and shoving and stealing things out of other people's baskets, you're asking the question, are you really trusting in yourselves or are you really trusting in the Lord to, to take care of you? There ought to be a difference. There ought to be a difference in the way that we live and the way that we show confident trust in the Lord as opposed to living with the values of people that don't know God and don't appreciate what he's done. We need to absolutely regard the poor. We need to absolutely regard our neighbor and we absolutely need to remember that God's given us the material to serve the spiritual and not the other way around. God has not given us the spiritual to serve the material. And when we get that backwards, folks, we've missed it. We've missed it. What God wants more than anything else is for us to see who Jesus is as sovereign, as the one that's worth walking that path with as the one who is able to supply in our life and is able to give us the abundant life, John 10, verse 10, and the one that's able through his name and through his blood to carry us on into eternity. That's the one we ought to be trusting in. We can't have the wrong view of Jesus and expect that we're supposed to save ourselves. Otherwise, we've got the wrong view of ourselves. And we've got to realize 
our possessions are temporary. And as we look at ourselves as blessed in this country materially, we cannot ever let our pride cause us to think that our material possessions are God. That the things we've hoarded or the things we've got in our houses are the source of our salvation. Because they're not. How insidious pride is. How quickly it can cause us and lure us into a false sense of security. But as Jesus sent that rich young ruler away, or as he left because he had caused a pause about what Jesus told him. It gives us cause this morning to say, have I missed it? Do I have the wrong view of Jesus? Do I have the wrong view of myself? Do I have the wrong view of my possessions? Has pride blinded my mind and my heart so that I can't see clearly what the Lord wants me to do and what he wants me to be? If you're a Christian this morning, what he wants you to do and what he wants you to be is a faithful Christian more than anything else. To do all to the glory of God. To make sure that you're living your life, not putting your hope in the things that are here and now, but their hope is with Jesus Christ and when he comes back. But if you're not a Christian this morning, what he wants you to do more than anything else is believe and obey the gospel. That's from the Lord's mouth. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to be saved more than anything else, so much so that he didn't spare his own son, but sent him to die because he loved you that much. The best thing that you can do, the way that you can honor him best, and the way that you can show that you love him is by being obedient. Simply, nothing more, nothing less. Let's stand and sing our invitation song.